Hello there, I'm Sweet Kriti, host of Core User to UX, India's first podcast on user and UX research. In today's episode, we have another UX veteran with us, Mr. Darren Hood. A UXer since 1995, Darren had the beautiful chance of witnessing the evolution of UX. He has never hesitated to call out ineffective and misdirected UX practices. One of the current missions of Darren is to make budding UXers aware of the misinformation out there. In this episode, we discuss the current state of UX and what can we learn from the UX history. So let's begin. Hi, Darren. It is just simply amazing to have you here on the show. You have got more than two decades of experience in the field of UX and, you know, you sort of witness the birth and the evolution to whatever the field is right now. So yep. you are one of those few people who is like reachable and has also witnessed so many phases of the field. So it's yeah. simply an honor to have you here and you know ask questions. So thank you so much for this. I'm very happy to be here and always glad to help. So yeah, these are fun, so I'm, I'm ready. You know, the Indian context makes it more special because UX in India is still evolving. Like America has seen a lot, but in India, you know, we are still in the stage where it is getting famous. Like you have degrees in college, but you know, not most of the recruits are from colleges. So it's like very interesting scenario here. So talking to people like you becomes all the more important. So, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you know what's funny about that? If I could jump in and make a comment about that, it it seems like America has made a lot of progress <laughs> when it comes to UX. It actually hasn't. Uh, quick timeline. Uh, of course, we don't. Don Norman was the first person to have a title that had UX in it, and that was in like the mid 1990s. Yeah. However, however. Uh, that didn't become a common practice for about 13, 14 years after that happened to him. And the funny thing about it, when he was doing UX work, it wasn't on, on websites. It was on actual hardware. It was on devices that people were using. And it's funny that people, they know that he was called, the, uh, had the UX title first, mm-hmm. but people don't think about the work that he was doing. And so consequently, everything is sort of like full circle in a sense. When you come forth to about 1998, when the polar bear book was written and information architecture starts to come to the forefront, ironically, about the same time that the dot-com bus happened. Yeah. So everybody was rushing to get on the internet, but they didn't know how to present the experiences. So everything on the internet, a great deal of it was failing. It wasn't until about 2000 and well, I, I got into UX full time in 2005 and i was dabbling i was doing it in my freelance work as a web designer i was applying ux principles i was doing it part-time starting in about 2002 but i didn't know a whole lot and and the funny thing is that back then there was no misinformation out there about ux related practices the information architecture interaction design uh, there were books about research, uh, UX research, that were starting to hit the market, what we now call UX research. But the, none of these things were commonplace. And you mentioned the schools. <laughs> Still today, in 2021, there are not either not very many programs that are offering uh, programs for HCI or interaction design or UX. There are not very many at the university level. 
And many of them that do, I, I guess I should just say it this way, there are very few quality programs, some of which even you can go to a program and get in, you're paying and you get inundated with misinformation. How's that for a major contradiction? So we have not advanced as people, we've not advanced as much as we think we have and as much as people will give us credit for because the misinformation still abounds. A lot of the UX educational programs are dysfunctional and, and are not very well structured. And a lot of the programs that are out there, I'm getting a PhD in educational leadership. I've been, I was in education before I was in UX. Um, and I noticed that the way that education is structured, it's not structured properly at all. So now we've got hurdles everywhere you go. If you want to learn about UX, you have to jump hurdles, but babies don't, don't jump hurdles. That's not the first thing they do. First they crawl, then they stumble, then they walk. And then when they walk, they get excited and they all, no matter where they are, anywhere in the world, babies want to run as soon as they can walk. And people actually do the same things when it comes to UX, but nobody hurdles. People who are coming into UX are being forced to hurdle, but they have no idea. So they, they come in contact with the hurdle and then they don't interact with it properly. And I'll, I'll reel myself in from there, but I thought I'd start us off with that and, and help people to understand that. It's, and so without a guide, people are going to go down the wrong streets. Someone just published a, a report called the state of UX and it's full of, it's full of misinformation. So, but as somebody who's just coming into UX, they think that that's informative, but now you're taking in something. And I, I use this phrase a lot. People have to go through a cognitive enema when they get exposed to misinformation. And it's harder to unlearn something than it is to learn something. Oh, absolutely. So this is the, yeah, this is the challenge today. Um, that brings me to a very interesting point. Like a few weeks ago, I watched a video by Jacob Nielsen where, you know, he was giving a talk that how the number of jobs in the UX field are going to increase. Like right now we constitute some percentage, but that percentage is going to increase in the corporations. But now with this perspective, I... I don't know, like, what will be the quality of those jobs and how much work? Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like we've got we've got more cars on the street. Yeah. How many people can drive them? Yeah. It, it's there are a lot of like I just had a post. You, I don't know if you saw that or not, but I just did a post this past week that people think that the UX job world is booming and the appearance is that it's booming. But there are some inherent problems with the supposed boom. Companies are, uh, I, I actually tell a story when I talk about my timeline, I tell the story about when jobs began to boom after NASA and IBM did research saying that for every, they were talking about the ROI associated with UX, how to for every dollar you invest, you get anywhere between the different reports that are out there, anywhere from one, you invest $1, you get anywhere from 100 to $250 in return. Corporations got wind of that bought into the mindset and they say, okay, get us some UX people. And then they walk away. They never got educated though, with regard to UX. So fast forward to today, because that happened about 2003, 2004 with uh, subsequent reports coming out later. Fast forward to today, you go to LinkedIn and you could look at, man, 20, 30 pages of UX job postings, and then you start to get fatigued and you don't want to look anywhere. There's that many jobs out there 
how many of them are really legit? And, and in my estimation, I talk to people all over the place. I've applied for job, a lot of jobs over the course of my career. And in the last few years, very few of those people really want true UX folks. Very few of those companies really want real UX practitioners. There, a lot of those companies confuse UX with UI when it's possible to do UI work without even touching the scratching the surface when it comes to doing anything associated with UX methods. But people still think that that's UX. It's not. Uh, I, I've been in rooms before and told people something about UX and have people stand toe-to-toe with me and don't want to hear anything that I have to say. But what I said is 100% accurate, and it's going to come back to bite you if you don't pay attention to the recommendations. So it looks like the job market is booming. It's not. Matter of fact, I've actually taught people on occasion how to how to sift through job postings so that you can recognize the red flags. Uh, things such as if you see the post and it's always out there. Yes, yeah, some companies keep a running job post because they want to keep a pool of candidates. Some companies do that. Some companies, that's not what they're doing. They keep hiring the wrong person, and then they go and they do a post so they can get another one. Mm-hmm. And and they they never, those companies never take the time to realize we must be doing something wrong. Mm-hmm with our hiring. They never do that. They just keep recycling. And I find out who these companies are. And then I red flag them. And and I talk to people about them. Uh, A lot of companies don't know how to write a job description Mm -hmm. for a UX related job posting. So what they do is they copy other job postings that are on Glassdoor or Indeed or something like that. And then they just, that's why a lot of the job postings look the same because one company is copying from another one and then so on and so on and so on. 50 companies all have a UX posting and, and 48 of them copied off somebody else. So, but they don't know what UX is. So when you go into the interview, and a lot of people listening to this, but probably if you haven't experienced it, you will, you'll ask them a question about something in the job posting and nobody can answer it. Or you ask a question in the in the interview, and they'll say, oh, well, we didn't get to update that yet. That really doesn't mean anything. So a lot of job postings have things that aren't even real. So that means that we have to develop a skill. How is how can you go through job postings in a in a productive and skillful manner? You have to learn how to do it. They're, they're, a lot of job postings are not what they seem, and the so-called job opportunities, I, I call it the, the opportunity paradox. It looks like there's an opportunity. It may not be. And, and then there's, I'll say this one and I'll stop for now, there is people assume that the big-name companies are the places to be. And a lot of times, the big-name companies, they're just as immature when it comes to UX as a lot of other companies. So now people, you'll see people on LinkedIn. Oh, I'm former Facebook. Oh, I'm former Amazon. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> it means nothing. UX is UX. The fact that you did it somewhere else doesn't put you on a on a pedestal somewhere. The fact that you've done UX for Amazon doesn't mean that oh, we must listen to this person. Oh, we must worship him. No, you you were there. And why'd you leave if it was so great? So <laughs> so yeah, it, there's a lot of really a lot of noise. Hmm. basically if i had to sum it up a lot of noise like you mentioned some really important points because 
if jacobs you know prediction that ux jobs are going to increase so it it becomes important for the serious ux people to also skill them up to sift through the best jobs because you yeah. know with that kind of number the separation between you know average or mediocre uxers and top notch uxers is also going to be very evident so it yeah. becomes important for the top notch people to like upgrade themselves and you know actually see through which is actually ux job and which is just a copy pasted job description yes yes and 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 it just made me think about something else when you said that when a person opts into being a ux professional you have committed to lifelong learning we never stop learning we never stop growing yeah. i want to call out i want to call out nielsen norman group on something though if i can when when companies say Oh, there's going to be he, Jacob Nielsen said, oh, there's going to be, and I love, I love Jacob Nielsen. And I love that they don't, they don't follow the, the dollar like mm-hmm. some other resources do out there. It's not about making money. There is some respect for the discipline and I appreciate that. But when a company says, I'm not really calling them out, but I'm calling out something we need to, and as critical thinkers, which is a part of what it is to be a UXer, so many lack critical thinking, but that's at the core of who we are mm-hmm. and what we do. When somebody says that there's going to be a lot of positions, the reaction that a lot of people have is, oh, I need to, I need to, just like you just said, I need to, I need to scale up my skill. Mm-hmm. We, I, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge people. Forget about associating your need to upscale with the supposed boom in positions. We're supposed to upscale anyway. So it doesn't matter if, if you're reacting to his statement. Um, then you're not, we are a proactive, it's a proactive discipline. So we don't react to anything. So throw his people who see that and then they say, Oh, I need to, I need to ramp up. No, you don't. You always need to ramp up when you're, when you're sitting up under a tree on a Saturday, drinking iced tea and it's beautiful weather and you're taking in the weather and nothing is happening. You'll sit there and go, I really need to scale up. You don't wait to react to something. And then a lot of them say that because you know you need to you need to scale up. And by the way, you can come and learn from us. That's the one thing I want to avoid that because trying to that's a sales. I used to be a salesperson, and it is a sales tactic to create a sense of urgency, hoping that somebody will react to it. So that's what I don't. That's what I, I thought about calling them out. It's, it's the fact that they say that and then don't tell you that it's actually the muddy. The waters are muddy. You can't you can't talk about the boom without talking about the mirage that comes with the boom. So I want to make sure people are clear about the mirage. It, it's always and and this misinformation problem, it's it, it'll be around for 20, 30 more years. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's gonna be older, almost as old as the discipline itself. Mm-hmm. And that only goes back to 2011. You misinformation was not rampant. It wasn't even common. Matter of fact. I never came across any misinformation in UX until 2011, 2012. So we were we went for a full 15 to 17 years with, is it that far? 2000 and 1995, 2005, 2015. So yeah, roughly 17 years before misinformation became common. Mm. That's pretty wild when you think about it. Now it's everywhere. That's the misinformation. It just gets wild, like even in media. And again, 
few more interesting points there. The fact that we started from hardware and now UX is so much about apps and also websites, you know, is justifies the fact that it's a proactive field. You cannot react to stuff. You yep. always have to be in action. Mm -hmm. That is an important point because uh, if we keep reacting to whatever is put out there, we lose the purity of the field. Like yep. what has happened. The journey of the entire field from hardware to expanding everywhere should be the witness of the fact that UX is not still, it's moving and we need to constantly be active. So thank Absolutely. you for that point. That is really out of the world realization for me at this point of time. Yes, 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 absolutely. You made me, th when you say that too, you make me think about the fact that one of the ways that we can be proactive is the more you really, I, I, I don't expect entry-level folks to do this, but I think it will grow on you as you advance, that you, you get to the point where you're not just doing UX at work. When you, when you really transition into becoming a, a person, that is a UXer at the core of who you are. You 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 go to a restaurant and you look at the menu, and you start to examine the UX of the menu. Yeah. You get on an elevator and you begin to examine the UX of the elevator. You go to an airport and you begin to examine the UX at the airport, and it's, that's when you start to understand the pervasive nature of user experience. It started out with hardware mm -hmm. when the internet came along because that's where the demand was, it was, there was a greater demand on the internet. So everything shifted. And then everybody thought that that's where UX belonged when the truth is it always was pervasive. Mm -hmm. And so now people are starting to learn. They're starting to apply it to hardware. They're yeah. starting to apply UX to interactive voice response systems. When you call somebody on a phone and they tell you to press one, press or say one, press or say two, UX is starting to get into that space. So uh, it, it's everywhere. UX is in whatever room you're sitting in, there's a UX in the room that you're in. Mm -hmm. I got ready for us to start recording and I have green screens that are that are set up. I'm surrounded by green screens to make sure that that uh, I appear properly on video. I set up that UX so that the experience, your experience in interacting with me, it looks like I'm in the room with a brick wall in the back and with some skis on the wall. Never owned a pair of skis in my life. The, <laughs> <laughs> this is... But UX, it's everywhere. I have lights that are on me pointing a particular way. So UX is everywhere, whether you're sitting in a car, whether you are waiting on a bus, whether you are sitting at a table at a restaurant looking to eat the way things are structured. They have to lay silverware or plastware, whatever it is, or making things available to you. We're surrounded by UX. And so as we advance, as we grow, as we personally evolve, we'll start to broaden our perspectives about UX and that helps us to grow and it helps us to bring value over time, more value. Uh, we had a discussion about it the last time we met, like how the pervasive and the transcending nature of UX makes it different and makes it not just a job to do. Yes, 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 absolutely. Yes, it, it is so one of the things that up and comers in UX, I mean, yeah, if you're, you're at first, we're all excited about it. Everybody was, 
you're excited about UX or where, when, I, when I came on board, it was it was more information architecture and interaction design. And I was excited. I was excited about that. And then I would learn about something else and I would get excited about that. And so there's the work. But then there's the where that work fits in our society. Mm-hmm. And when you start to realize how important UX is to society as a whole, it's not just the work anymore. I mean, I, I was um, thinking about some of the things associated with what I do during the day. I, I work for an a company for a company that designs um, uh, autonomous pharmacy solutions for healthcare facilities. And when you find out that compounds, a mixture of one or more medicines to make one medicine, when you find out that those can be mixed improperly or the wrong medicine can be combined with another one and then it can become toxic it can kill someone when you find out that that needs to be done accurately and that there's a ux that helps to ensure that that is done accurately then what i'm when you realize that your contribution will will help to save lives it will help to eliminate error this is not just a job anymore Mm -hmm. I, i had a conversation once and i didn't tell you about this one when we talked before but I had a conversation once and I was working, I'll, I'll leave the company name out of this one, but we were in Silicon Valley and we were taking a look at some autonomous vehicle dashboards. Uh, and the people who designed it were really, really excited. And I'm sitting there as I normally do, sitting there looking around, listening to what they were saying. But we began because, like I said, when you, the more you grow in UX, it just becomes a part of you. Mm. And so they're showing me, they're not expecting me to audit what they're doing, but I, I automatically do it. And I looked at it and they, yeah, when the person does this and the mode shifts, then it turns into this color and this little light comes on over here. I let them finish. And then I had my questions. I was, I was loading questions as they were talking. And I presented one question and everybody just went silent. <laughs> and I said, if, okay, so when a person does X, Y, and Z, there's a, they perform a particular task. There's a part of the dashboard that changes color. It's, not, it's an icon, essentially, that comes on on the dashboard in this self-driving vehicle. And I said, what about the, all it does is change color, really. I said, what happens when a colorblind person uh, changes? Have you done anything to account for colorblind people, of which there are going to be a lot of colorblind people driving autonomous vehicles? So if you ch- if you indicate a change in the state of the vehicle simply by color, and then I just stopped, and everybody froze. And nobody said anything else to me, and I guess the conversation was over, and I left. And, and I hope, now that was some years ago, I hope they changed, because if not, If that thing went to production, which a lot of times they do, because a lot of people in UX also don't realize you have to have thick skin to do this work. We get ignored a lot. And it doesn't matter how much sense your statement makes. (laughs) People, their bias, the bias of a a dogmatic stakeholder is going to override your common sense and your data mm, at least maybe six or seven times out of ten. And so I hope that that did not go to production because it looked like they had already done a a live prototype. Mm -hmm. 
and everything. Not not one in Figma or anything like that. I'm taking, I mean, a real prototype. That's what it looked like to me. Uh, they need to go back and do something with that. There has to be another indicator on the screen that indicates that that lets people know across the board that there is a change and what that state is. You can't rely on color. So again, UX impacts lives. It impacts lives. The, the story in the beginning of Alan Cooper's book, The Inmates Are Running the Asylum, that there was a plane crash and they found out that the plane crashed because the, the pilot couldn't understand some of the controls in the cockpit. They understood them to be one thing when they were actually another. And it meant something to people in one culture, but it didn't mean something to people in another. But nobody accounted for that. So we're the back to proactivity. UX, we are risk mitigation is a part of UX. But a lot of people that are doing UX have no idea that risk mitigation is a part of UX. It's not a part of UI, but it's a part of UX. Again, the differentiation between UI and UX. So we're, we're really important. And when we realize we're that important, not that it goes to our head and we stick our chest out and we're proud and things of that nature, but it, it should encourage us to be more, more uh, have more of a sense of gravity uh, soberness and keeping our head on straight because the work we're doing is important. And so if you're just happy about a check, but you don't take the work seriously, somebody could die depending, <laughs> upon, depending <laughs> upon who you're, what you're doing the work for. Somebody's ATM card could get stuck in the machine. If you don't do things the right way, they can't log in. They can't check out. They can't upload something to, to, you know, we need to respect every, it's another aspect of UX, the, 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 the interpersonals, the EQ elements, the more respectful you are, the better of a UX person you're going to be because you're going to take other people's perspectives into consideration and you're going to work to account for them. But if you're just caught up in it and you're being egotistical about it, you won't care and you'll just roll things out. So yeah, it, it's about way more than just the work. There are a lot of other factors that, that are involved in doing real UX and and if you want to be more successful, you have to take them into consideration. Again, an amazing perspective on how UX is so much about risk mitigation as well. I mean, it's it just continues to blow my mind how <laughs> Again, a very important point there that the micro nature of UX in the yeah. sense that you have to think about every individual and their living existence. Yes. And that micro nature of the field makes it so much worthwhile and honest because, you know, macro things, like bigger things, a lot of the times get to be muddy or not clear. But when yeah. you dissect it to the micro aspect, that's when things start to become clear and that clarity just like a vibe transcending vibe just uh, gets everywhere and you know there's clarity and there are good experiences so again an amazing point there thank you so much for that darren and oh absolutely yes uh, i will absolutely come to your job because that's the most interesting <laughs> thing about what you do like it's amazing but before that i want to cover a few more points about okay. misinformation i watched your session overcoming the whirlwinds of misinformation and there's something you call lean ux yeah 
Lean UX. Oh my God. This is part of that the misinformation in a bit in, in, in a nutshell, a lot of times has to do with what we call uh anchoring bias. A lot of times, and I understand how it happens, but the more critical thinking we engage in, the more we'll be aware that just because you hear something doesn't mean it's true. But unfortunately, because a lot of people have what I call baby bird syndrome, I think that was in the same talk, because a lot of people have what I call baby bird syndrome, and they trust that the information they're getting is accurate. They don't stop to ask questions about what they hear. Lean just has to do with operating quickly and to eliminate waste. That's all lean is. That concept was developed years ago. I remember somebody saying that it came, Toyota was the one that presented it. They were the first ones to bring it to market and give it that name. That we're trying to work lean. We're trying to eliminate waste. We're trying to move quickly. Had nothing to do with UX. Somebody brought the concept of lean into the world of UX and then try to introduce the concept of lean UX. That's not necessarily wrong in general, because again, I do believe the concept of lean UX is right. But when you look at the book, the most recent book about lean UX, they'll say things like you don't need experts. And, and uh, they talk about uh, trying to basically design by committee and things like that. That's whatever they're talking That's not going to make things lean, mm -hmm. bringing non experts into a, into, into, I mean, it's like it's, it's, it's having too many cooks in the kitchen. So how does that how does that constitute being lean? It doesn't. Now, I'm actually going into a little bit more detail than I did in that one talk. So lean, it's quick, and it's without waste, or it's always identifying waste and eliminating it. But if you're not identifying and eliminating waste, then you're not lean. So throw that out. Then, in the in the re most recent book. He's not talking about doing UX at all. And the person who wrote the book hasn't practiced UX anywhere in years. So he doesn't know what some of us go through on a daily basis. On top of the fact that the concept of lean UX, and I'll define it in a moment, the concept of lean UX, as it has been presented, came up during what I'm starting to call the UX dark ages because misinformation didn't start to become commonplace in UX till 2011, 2012, and the concept of lean UX came up right about the same time. So positions that came up during that time, dark ages, concepts, dark ages, UX writing, uh, the exaltation of design thinking, even though it existed before that, the UXers got their hand on it and they did something different with it. All of these things that have come up during the age of of during the dark ages all need to be questioned to the nth degree and revalidated and you will find when you really look it's not legit but what is true lean ux well number one that kind of didn't define ux yet ux is really an umbrella term that's referring to multiple discipline or multiple methods methodologies and techniques it also includes certain types of artifacts and deliverables all of which to help drive an optimal user experience while driving success for the business. That's what UX is. Mm -hmm. And there's a hundred definitions and all of them generally work. I'm just giving you one. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's what, so without waste, achieving wins for the user and for the business, that's lean UX in a nutshell. So if you do lean UX, if you're not moving fast, it's not lean UX. If you're not, if you're not embracing the pillars, cause that means that lean UX still keeps the pillars. 
So usability and heuristics, number one, information architecture, number two, UX research, number three, and interaction and interface design, number four, lean UX consists of all four of those pillars, but you're just moving quickly as you do them. That's what I call lean UX. And, and so yeah, I'm not against the concept. It's just, it depends on who's presenting it and what they're saying. Cause there are times we want to be able to do all kinds of detailed research and we want to take three weeks to do this, that, and the other, or four weeks or whatever it is. Truth is you can't always do that. So how do you move quickly and get wins and iterate? Cause if you're working in agile, you're going to get two, three week sprints. So you need to come up with things you can deliver during each sprint. So then you're going to have to be lean. So you're going to have to move quickly. How can I move quickly? Well, maybe I need to do some guerrilla testing when it comes to research. I need to be aware of information architecture principles. I need to make sure that my nomenclature, that my taxonomies, my findability is all structured properly. I need to make sure that I'm following interaction design principles, all of those things. But I'm moving fast. I'm moving faster. That's lean UX. Not like some people say they think lean is fast, to the extent that they show you something without context and wants you to give them answers. That's not lean. That's downright foolish. So there is no such thing as foolish UX. So, <laughs> but people are asking for that and they get angry. I've had people get angry at me because I don't give them an answer. I don't even have the context of the experience, but they got answers from other people that were less skilled. So that's one of the other problems. So lean UX is indeed a thing. But folks have to be careful how they how they really understand what it is. And, and that means there's a lot of work to do. Again, it's beyond the work because you have to educate your stakeholders. Yeah. Or they think we're order takers. We're not order takers. So you know, tell me, what should I do about this? You know, like those silly posts you see all the time. Mm -hmm. Is it, which button is better, red or green? Well, mm -hmm. what's the context? Yeah. What's the context? Well, what do you, what do you mean, which button is better? What happened to everything else on this page? From a micro experience perspective, even with those with those little illustrations, there's 50 things on the page that you can address from a UX perspective. Why are you only asking me about one? I, matter of fact, somebody did that to me once, and I actually did a a quick contrast analysis, and I posted, well, you shouldn't use these colors because uh, it it fails in AA and AAA for accessibility, and then I, I listed all these other things. I said so. Why are you asking me about this when you have all these other issues? And the person flat out ignored me. They didn't even care. And they claim to be a UX person. So these are the problems we're, we're dealing with, the things we're trying to address. Yeah. Um, people really need to understand that, that because it can be misinterpreted in the pervasive agile culture right now. That yeah. Being here means eliminating waste and speed is the product of it. You don't have to yes. Feed the center of everything. You have to be <laughs> eliminating waste the center of that process. Yep. Yeah, that's very important point. Yep. It's funny too that I've worked at several companies that say that they're agile, and I've not been at two companies that did agile alike. So when somebody says they're doing agile, some of the people say they're doing agile, and it's what we uh, jokingly started calling agile fall. They, they call it agile, but it's really waterfall. <laughs> it's waterfall, waterfall with stands up and scrums, but it's still, it's still waterfall. It's not agile. So the people need to expand their understanding of, of agile yeah. today because it's, it's not. A lot, of a lot of companies are not practicing agile. They say they are, but they're not. Yeah. 
and you know bringing in meetings and uh, centering around speed brings more waste yes it does <laughs> yes it does it's good it's wise to be deliberate yeah. it's it's wise to be methodical uh, you don't want to, you could reach a destination if you drive faster, but if you drive faster, you could also die and never get there or just have an accident and never get there. So I want to move as quickly as true lean operation moves as quickly as you can mm-hmm. and as quickly as you should and never moving so fast that you introduce waste or that you introduce risk because every time you introduce risk every risk has to be mitigated it has to be managed so you have to be on the on the lookout for if we do this these five risks are going to come into play well we can't just blindly do them because we're trying to accomplish things at the end of a sprint just take something that we don't finish and roll it over to the next sprint. Hmm. But don't introduce something that's going to cost the company money, cost the team development time, and, and and increase the cost of our production. Just because all in the name of getting something done fast. I mean, one of the things that came out of Lean was MVP. Hmm. And, and now that's become a buzzword now in the sense that MVP doesn't mean what it what it originally was meant to mean. It's supposed to be minimum viable product, which is the minimum viable product. The thing that we can put out there that will generate wins for everybody that we can do the fastest. Well, what can we do? What's the minimum? Let's not, let's not try to do too much because we can have other iterations. We can have, you know, other versions. We can do dot one, dot two, dot three. We can do that. And we can have cycles that we're going to deploy and update once a month, maybe whatever it is. The, the thing is they've forgotten, people have forgotten that the V stands for viability, not visible, because I jokingly call it minimal visible product. The, so just deploying something for the sake of deploying something is a really bad business move. And, and somebody on the team knows enough about business to say we should not do this. But yeah. it's the way it goes. Yeah. So coming to the part I am the most excited about that is <laughs> your job like the field you are in that is pharmaceutical and medical management with the help of automation I yes. taking the company's name is so interesting because you have to understand the day-to-day lives of medical professionals yes and in the current job I am right now, I'm also trying to do something like that. I am doing something like that. So I'm <laughs> trying to understand that what is their day-to-day lives and what are the tools they use and how do we enter the picture. But that becomes way more serious in the medical field. Yes. What was your process? Or maybe what was your journey in understanding your users? For me to understand the users at our company, especially during the pandemic, we don't get an opportunity to be in front of users 
as much as we normally would. We do have some people on the team that are okay with traveling and they might go and spend some time at a facility and then they have to put on all the garb yeah. so that they don't, um, so they don't uh, contaminate the different medicines, things of that nature. And they watch the different pharmacists do their jobs as they're putting together compounds or divvying up the different measurements uh, you know, a certain measurement goes inside of each one of the little pills and things of that nature. So uh, they're putting things together. And then the big part, a, a big part of what we do is not just the robots that are distributing, that are putting together compounds and distributing medicine to the different floors where the patients are. And then we have the little lights that come on to let you know that a patient in such and such a place is time for their meds. So a little light will come on mm-hmm. to let, to, to cue the nurse that, this a patient needs her meds, then they open up the cabinet and then the another light comes on. This is the the medicine that's going to that particular patient. So they're able to identify the patient. Uh, they're able to identify what the medicine is, things of that nature. Our so we talk to clinicians hmm. to understand that that flow. We talk to farm, we have internal people that work for our company that were pharmacists that understand how the work goes and they can tell us about a day in the life of for the people that are doing that work. And in addition to even just the distribution and the measuring out uh, of the, of the medicines, there's also the management of inventory Mm -hmm. is something that's really, really big. Do we have opportunities to save money? Do we have, if there are multiple locations with a particular group, are there ways that we can help to, to optimize where our inventory is. Maybe there's a shortage at one facility and you're able to to manage your inventory that way and shift things from one place to another. We need to be proactive. We need to assist them to be proactive in their work so that they know if you if you have a shortage, if you're about to run out, if you are uh, you have a certain certain trends that are happening in your locations, we want to be able to serve up that information for you. So so the clinicians, the pharmacists give us those insights. We do have people, we do have a CX team. They spend time talking to people. We can get those downloads mm-hmm. on the UX side to understand more about our users from that perspective. And these things are all extremely valuable. That way we're not guessing because we're talking about lives. Mm-hmm. We're talking about optimal management of medical and healthcare facilities. So we need to be able to identify things up front so that people can be informed and make informed decisions. And that's what, that's what by knowing the users with our internal folks and the CX people talking to other people, they give us what we need to know so that we can make decisions, sound database decisions on how the user experience can be handled at the micro and at the macro level. Mm-hmm. So any interesting stories or insights that just were mind-blowing to you and you were researching or designing like that insight that changed everything is there a story about that the biggest thing that's hit me so far involves some of the data when i found out how important the work that my employer is into Hmm. that's that's the thing that strikes me when i find out that a lot of people go to er they go to emergency the volumes of people i don't have the numbers but it's off the charts it's like somewhere like six figures, the number of people who go to the hospitals in the States because they took the wrong, because the medicine wasn't 
was inaccurate. There was, they took the wrong medicine or they took the wrong volume of medicine or sometimes just patient inflicted, self-inflicted where they don't take, they just don't take the message that was prescribed to them, things of that nature. Not get, getting the wrong medicine uh, or somebody getting the wrong medicine, they're in the hospital and it's time for them to get the medicine and the numbers associated with people who get the wrong medication. They were supposed to get medication A, but they got medication B. Uh, a story I heard once that's at the core of, of what we do today, something that drove the, the vision where there was a story about an individual who, and I believe this video is actually up on YouTube, where there was an individual whose daughter was diagnosed with cancer and she was going through the treatments and reached the point, man, when somebody is 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 uh, has to suffer something like that, it's really mind-blowing that the person has to go through these chemo and all these different treatments and things of that nature, she overcame. She was cancer-free. Mm-hmm. But they said, let us do one more test before we, before we go ahead and close the book on this. We're so happy for you talking to her father. We're so happy for you. We're going to run one more test, if you don't mind. So they go to run one more test, and the nurse starts to put together the compound to administer it to the little girl, cannot find one of the ingredients for the compound, and she assumed that another medicine would work, that something else would work. So she manually put together the compound. It it turned out to be the wrong solution. And the little girl overcame cancer, was given the wrong medicine, and she died. And, and that's what, wow, I mean, she went all through that, all, went through all that to overcome cancer only to die because somebody made a mistake mixing up the compounds. So our system eliminates that. When you know that somebody needs X, it's already, you know, it's an in inventory. You can look it up. You know, it's an in inventory. You do whatever the internal, uh, go through the internal processes to get the medicine that you need. But you know now, because of using our system, mm-hmm. when you get that medicine, there is, there are zero instances of someone getting the wrong compound mixture. And I'm happy to be a part of that. Wow. To help. <laughs> That's a superhero job. I mean, that when you're handling with lives and creating a system that, doesn't allow for any mistakes is yeah it's a superhero job absolutely yes and and in the age where a lot of people again are getting they they're excited about getting into ux but they're not they don't understand how important they are and they flippantly and haphazardly engage it's going to cost somebody eventually is going to cause somebody. And, and we all know, we've all been there. We've all used something and we've been frustrated by it. Uh, a company, a recruiting company in the States called Vitamin T did some research. I believe it was in 2016, 2017. They said that 97% of user experiences that people are experiencing are wrong. That's, ama- that's an amazing number. Yeah. 97%. And, and a lot of times it's because People don't do the research. They do the research and somebody doesn't listen to them. People don't take their jobs very seriously. They go through the motions. They say they're doing UX, but they're not. They're doing UI. 
where they say they're doing UX and they're handing somebody something and, and there's, it's all UI and there's no UX applied to it whatsoever. So when that happens, you know, it's user interface is one thing. User experience without users is not user experience. So when somebody rolls something out that doesn't have the insights needed to ensure that we're designing the right things, whether you're placing an order on Amazon or, or trying to, to customize a vehicle that you want to buy and you're at an automotive website and you're trying to put together the vehicle, if you can't, we call it build and price. If you can't do build and price quickly and efficiently, that could cost your company a sale. So there's, there, there's a lot. And, and then, you know, the, the example I just gave, UX is a lot more serious than we think it is. Uh, and a lot more than people who jump into the field haphazardly consider. And so, yeah, we need, we are important. All you UXers out there, <laughs> you're important. And you don't want somebody's failed user experience on your conscience. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings us to uh, another interesting point we talked about the UX boom when you know companies just started posting about UX jobs yeah not the onus is not only on the people who are looking for jobs but also on the companies like if you take your company seriously and your vision yeah. seriously you wouldn't do anything like that in your right. case if your company would have done something like that you know in hopes of 250 on $1 return. There is a significant possibility that might have costed lives from a job posting to a life. That's yes. how deep the connection is. Absolutely. You just made me think about something else too, about that ROI. <laughs> a company is only going to get 100 to $250 in return for every dollar if they hire the right people and practice UX the right way. A lot of companies who are putting up these bad job postings, who don't know how to interview candidates the right way, who don't know how to review portfolios, who give people flat out, I'm going to say, silly design exercises, uh, who put people, I, I heard a story recently about someone who had to do the, uh, a series of design exercises that took them hours, actually days to complete and didn't get the job. Why would you put a candidate through all of that? And, and I found that companies do that because they don't know how to evaluate candidates. And so, but, so you bring these people in, you think you've hired the right person, but if you didn't, you're not going to get the ROI. You're simply not going to get it. People have, they're putting together UX teams and there's no true seniors. Oh, there are people with the title senior, but a senior at one company is not necessarily a senior at another because and, and and the the if the discipline was more respectful across the board it would be easy a senior at one company could be a senior at another company but it's not the case because of the because of the the varied ux maturity from company to company it fluctuates dramatically so that there's a lot there's a lot of work to be done basically is what it boils down to and and as individuals we want to we want to be committed to critical thinking as much as possible so we can make good decisions, apply at the right companies. Don't just chase a position. Don't chase the, the, the big names. It doesn't mean that they understand UX at all. And matter of fact, many of them do not. A lot of big companies don't. I, I know about one company that has over 900 people on their UX team. That's actually a red flag. 
That's a red flag because if people were actually doing the work right, you wouldn't need 900 UXers, truth be told. And and I did some investigating and I, I found out why they have 900 people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't know, I know people who had zero UX experience that were hired to that same company to operate at the equivalent of a principal level. But they have zero experience. That tells you what's going on in those environments and so yeah it, it, we're we're in a it's a great time to get into ux but like when isn't there a good time to get into ux it's also a troublesome time so everybody do their self a favor by uh do themselves a favor by really ramping up and understanding what ux really is making sure that you measure yourself the right way you evaluate yourself the right way and continue to grow the right way and and overcome the misinformation of today and and uh, just represent, be committed to represent the discipline accurately in everything that you do as a UXer. It was an amazing talk. Just one last question. It, sure, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I will say it's a bit personal as well. Like for someone who has lost faith in the traditional education system and you know doesn't want to go to boot camps and is on the path of self-education so what would you tell uh, to someone like that who is you know trying to self-educate themselves in the field of ux because honestly i do not trust whatever the universities <laughs> or boot camps are providing I, I just don't have the energy to sift through so many courses and you know pick the right one so i'm like I yeah my own path yeah, there are two things that I would say. I'm actually going to give for a first time. I'm going to give a recommendation I've never given before. I'm going, but I'm, I'm going to. That's so. That's part. I'm, so I'm going to give an A and a B to my answer. One is when it comes to self education. You just inspired me to do a piece on self education. I talk about it in my talk on the trouble with UX education, but I I could actually just talk about self education alone mm. to address how it can be done and optimized. Yeah. because that's how I started <laughs> and I got my first, but remember there was no misinformation at that time. So I didn't run it. I, I didn't learn anything I had to unlearn everything that I learned and I still have in my repertoire today. Mm -hmm. um, but the best path of UX education is a combination of books mm -hmm. and mentors relationships. And I'm going to say relationships instead of mentors because the word mentor has been diluted. Mm -hmm. So to in my understanding of a mentor in my 26 years as a UXer and 40 years in corporate America. So I'm a, I'm a 40 year professional veteran. So which a lot of people can't say that at all. I've been in, I've been working longer than a lot of people I talk to are old. So when you look at that relationship, a real mentor, there's a relationship there. Mm -hmm. And and you're interacting on a at least a semi-regular basis, providing guidance, uh, uh, evaluating feedback, uh, things of that nature, available for input. That that's what a mentor, a real mentor does. However, also one thing I forgot, let me take a step back. A real mentor is qualified. In UX today, a lot of people claim to be mentors don't even qualify to be mentors. 
they just say they're a mentor and then the baby birds accept it. They're not a mentor. They've all, they only have three years of experience. You're not a mentor yet. You've got, I've seen people who have literally five months of experience or less claiming to be mentors. There are boot camps. Talk about the boot camps. There are boot camps that ask graduates to come back and serve as mentors. They have zero experience. They just graduated from the program. They don't have anything to offer. You cannot be a mentor unless you have already traveled the path to some extent. And, and there's a lot of people in UX today that do not qualify as mentors. They just flat out do not. And that's where a lot of the misinformation is coming from because somebody tells these people, oh, you got to get your voice out there and you got to be heard. Boom, misinformation. That's where a lot of it comes from. So, so part of it is you got to have somebody that you can connect with that's, been, that's seasoned and that's been around, has accomplished some things, has, has run into some brick walls, and can give you some insight about what to avoid and what to do to grow. Then the book, B is books. And I say books versus videos. There are some videos uh, that, matter of fact, I had uh, everything I'm covering right now in general is on an episode of my podcast called The Importance of a PLN. I don't remember which episode it is, but a person, you have to develop a personalized learning network. So that way you, whether it's videos, books, mentors, you put together a list of different resources that you can tap into to grow yourself and you can actually do well. The only caveat is it's slower than any other method. It's going to be solid, but it's slower. Mm -hmm. And so people need to remember that. The only, and the only other thing about books, is like videos. There was no misinformation when I was coming up in UX. There's plenty of it now, whether it's videos, podcasts, books. There are a lot of terrible UX podcasts. There are a lot of terrible today. There didn't used to be. There are some UX books I wouldn't touch. If you tried to give it to me, I wouldn't take them. Because a lot of books are written. Book People are stealing ideas from one another. They are repurposing things that automatically that already existed and claiming it to be theirs. I saw one, one book out there. And, and when you go to the website, it says that this book is the work of so-and-so and so-and-so. Well, the book is, but the stuff in the book is not. <laughs> it's the equivalent in my doctoral work. If I turn that, that did the same thing that that person did with their book, if I did the same thing, I could get in trouble for plagiarism. It's not, don't, don't repurpose what somebody else did and claim that you did it. <laughs> But a lot of the baby birds, they don't know. So they just they just accept it. So you have to be careful what books you watch. You have to be careful. There's a lot of great, a lot of good video content, but you have to be careful because most of it is not good. A lot of the medium is a cesspool of misinformation. So if you don't, you can go out there, there's a ton of stuff, like the new, what, is, what do they call the state of UX that just came out? It's garbage. I mean, the first part of it is garbage. I'm not going to read the rest. If you, if, if you get me, an, if I go to a restaurant, the appetizer stinks. I'm not looking forward to the meal. So the very first thing that I, that I read, it's, it's inaccurate. So book self, self taught is get yourself somebody you can connect with in the, in the industry and build a library, put together a PLN of books, videos, podcasts that you can try, that you can tap into because every time you come across something solid, it will always vault you forward. 
if it's not solid, somebody like me is going to come along and tell you how inaccurate something is. Now you have to unlearn it. Mm-hmm. And that's tough. Yep. That's tough. And, and the importance of having a mentor is the mentor can help guide you around the misinformation and keep you from tapping into it. But all of these are tough. That's a, it's a tough, it's a tough uh, path to go. Well, you can do it, but it's tough. And oh, the one I was going to recommend. I found out that David Travis has a course. He wrote the book, Think Like a UX Researcher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a course on Udemy. I did not know that. Him, I will support. So I will recommend tapping into him. Other people, uh, Udemy, we call those MOOCs, uh, Massively Open Online Courses. That acronym, M-O-O-C, stands for. uh, Yeah, I'm not not embracing anything else out there. I I I have recommended people go to, U of M has a course on Coursera, University of Michigan. They have a they have a course on Coursera. It's just like the Google course, which is not good at all. You, that it's peer reviewed content. I do rec- go. I, I did hear somebody say that they enjoyed their experience in the U of M program, which is drastically less than a boot camp, by the way. Uh, it's like fifty nine, sixty nine American dollars a month for somewhere between six and nine months, and you're done. That's a big difference in eight to twenty five thousand. So, so you can do that, uh, but what you can do to make up for the peer-reviewed content, you have a you have somebody else that you can run something by, run it by somebody who actually knows what they're looking at. The people who are students in your class, they're the same as you. That's like you and a friend doing each other's dental work. Good luck with that. <laughs> because, okay, I'm going to look at your teeth. Okay, would you see? Okay, now let me look at your, that's, that's peer-reviewed dentistry. Um, I need to do a post on that, but it's really sad. Uh, but that's how you can get over it. Whereas on the Google and the Google, um, course, you can't do that and make up for what it lacks in, in design. And there is a thing called instructional design, which I actually did before I was doing UX. And, and there are people who put together courses who know nothing about instructional design. So consequently, the people who take the courses, have a terrible learning experience or LX is another one of the X's there. So just something to, to remember, something to keep in mind. It was an amazing experience talking to you. Like, thank you for your time, your insights, your knowledge, your experiences. I mean, it was a, a really mind blowing and <laughs> it just widened my horizon, risk mitigation, lean UX, so many terms, but along with the essence of it and not just jargons thrown around. So thank yep. you for that. Thank you for giving me the core of everything and not that peripheral garbage that is <laughs> 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 well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Darren.